Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Do have a seat. Hi, I'm Hannah. Um, if we haven't met before, um, I'm Ed's wife for my sins. Um, this series that we've been doing, as the guys have already been talking about this morning, on the kingdom of God has been um, something of a particularly confronting one, I think, for both Ed and I. Because um, it really, really brings into stark reality for us the contrast between this thing that we believe in, this thing that we believe we're called to, this thing that we believe is ours in the kingdom, and the reality of what we see and everyone else sees in the day-to-day of life. Um, Some of those things being the time that we live in, some of these feeling more specific to this particular moment, I think, for a lot of us. In the early 90s, an anthropologist called Robin Dunbar, having done extensive research on the neocortex of monkeys and apes, determined that the size of the neocortex correlated exactly with the size that these groups of primates naturally formed. So the bigger the neocortex, the bigger the troop of monkeys. Given the relative size of human neocortices to ape neocortices, Dr. Dunbar extrapolated from this data that the size of the human troop, i.e. the size or the number of meaningful human relationships that we, that we have in his or her lifetime ranges from 100 to 250. Now this data, this, this theory is not without controversy, but run with me for a second. Because he had some pretty convincing historical facts to back it up. Archaeological findings of uh, the dwellings of Neolithic villages in the Middle East dating back to 6,000 BC show that the average village size was 120 to 150 people. In 1086, the average size of most English villages, according to the Doomsday Book, was 160 people. Army units from the Roman Empire up until today's times contain an average of 130 to 150 people. Throughout most of human history, by the age of 35, Dr. Dunbar claims, people have had around 150 connections. And then that number dwindles as as we reach old age. But for the last 20 years or so, we have come to believe, as a species, something quite different. Networking digital platforms convince us that we can meaningfully interact, have social connections with, hundreds, if not thousands of people, every day. And now add to that our access to information. 
within a generation, maybe a generation and a half, this has changed completely. For even our parents' generation, they had access to news, or would access news, once or twice a day in their daily local and world news. For us, something quite different is happening. And I do not think that our minds or spirits were made to hold or feel or respond to what is coming at us at the minute. Every minute of every day, every injustice, every natural disaster, every tragedy, every message of what our political enemies are saying, every moment of the day, not just from our city, our state, our nation, from all over the world. It's not how we were wired. So it should be of no surprise to us that our psyches are struggling with a baseline of anxiety and depression higher than ever before. Of course we're struggling. Of course the size of the problem seems overwhelming. And of course it seems unprecedented. I do not mean to sound like your ex-smoker, preachy preacher friend who just wants you to all throw your phones in the trash. But I do think that it's very, very important that we examine the implications of what is happening in our precious minds and spirits and why. Because we cannot care about this much for this long. Only God can. Our job as followers of Jesus and his church is to, as Susan Stabile very wisely teaches, ask ourselves, what is mine to say? What is mine to do and what is mine to care about? and what is not mine to do, say, and care about, which is not at all an issue of all of these things not being worthy of care. It's an issue of us knowing that we are not God. Only he can face all this. That was just a little aside, a little thought from me this morning before I actually get on with my talk now. Speaking this morning about the announcement that Jesus made when, and the announcement that he called his followers to make when he gave us the Great Commission. It was, however, a moment of true serendipity when I was writing this talk this week and I was thinking about how we receive you know, the nature of announcements and, and how this maybe feels different to us. And I got a news alert interrupting this thought, saying that on Tuesday, a self-appointed campus preacher at the University of Alabama was carrying a sign that said, women belong in the kitchen. Uh, and he was somewhat understandably punched in the face and knocked to the floor by a passerby. <laughs> Women belong in the kitchen guy is the kind of guy that makes an announcement today. Christians with agendas, agendas that they want to spread about how life should be controlled, they're the kind of Christians that make announcements today. Christians with books to sell, brands to build, personality cults to create. Those are the kind of people that make announcements today. But if we're not doing any of those things, what are we supposed to be announcing? Is there even anything to announce about what we believe anymore? Well, yes, according to the kind of undeniable instruction of Jesus. As we have been learning, this era that we are in is now and it is not yet. The kingdom is in our midst, almost here, and still promised more in full in the future. And our Christian life and what we are to announce only make sense 
if we can figure out what it means to live in this context, to separate it from other cultural realities and accept that the whole thing requires more than a small degree of nuance. It means accepting the tension because we all know what happens when the tension loosens on one side or the other. If the kingdom of God is only in the future, well, there's no point in praying for the miraculous. The gifts have ceased to exist. We need to motivate our, our churches around other battle cries. Hell's a pretty convincing one, isn't it? Or if it's entirely already here, the only reason that we can explain the frustratingly ongoing reality of our not heaven-like, uh, entirely heaven-like nature uh, is to believe that that's what, down to people not having enough faith, not being skilled enough in manifesting or something. Or we end up making whole other bizarre and actually entirely unbiblical um, concepts of timelines or phases or um, things like the dispensationalists, of course, who say that we're waiting for a certain thing to happen before the second coming, at which point we may or may not get taken to heaven with certain groups of people while there's seven years or something else. There's no evidence for this. There really isn't um, biblical cases for things like that. Instead, we have to understand that where we are requires grasping all these things at the same time, this tension. And listen to the very clear and unambiguous teaching of what Jesus said and what Jesus did to inaugurate his kingdom. Because from the very moment he began his ministry, he set about saying and doing very specific things to demonstrate it, and he told his followers to do the same. His whole life and ministry is a series of signs, a series of statements and a series of teachings, all bringing the kingdom in, speaking it into existence, giving us proof of its arrival, and depicting its very nature through parables and teaching. But I think we can often miss the layers of meanings in the miracles themselves. Um, just, I picked a passage in Luke 8, I'm speaking from Luke, so I just picked another, another little passage of four miracles in Luke 8 uh, to show you what I mean. So there's four miracles sandwiched together, you've probably, you probably know them all. The first one is the calming of the storm, the second one uh, right after it is when he crosses over the water and he uh, meets the demon-possessed garrison guy and, you know, the whole pig suicide thing. And then um, the bleeding woman who touches his cloak. And then straight after that is Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. It's one passage in Luke, and it says very clearly, the kingdom is at hand, and the one who is announcing it is taking charge of the powers of this earth, is taking charge of the powers of evil and banishes them to the abyss, the one who establishes this kingdom says to the unclean, forgotten, cast-out ones, the lowly things of this earth, which to uh, the Jewish people, the Gerasene man was by virtue of being a Gentile, and he certainly was by virtue of living among the tombs, living around the dead, but also the Jewish woman also was because she had been bleeding for 12 years, which means she's ceremonially unclean, which means she can't have any contact with anyone ever. Even touching another person, as she does Jesus, makes him unclean, according to the Jewish law. And the one who brings this kingdom is saying, you are well, you are brought back in, you are included, you are healed. And then he goes to the house of a Jewish leader, and he tells his daughter, who has died, to get up and have lunch. Just like everything he says, does, and teaches, Jesus is here to show that this is what his kingdom looks like. 
there will be no more destruction. Man-made, demon-made, nature-made. No more sickness, no more hierarchy, no more division. Even death will be conquered. Everything he says and everything he does is about this announcement. Announcements in this era, obviously prior to printing press and Morse code, were made by specifically employed heralds. The Roman Empire commissioned a carex, which is the Greek word after Hermes' son, the messenger to the gods in Greek mythology. And the job of the carex was to carry important state news from place to place, to arrive in a town and find a prominent place, and in a clear voice, make whatever edict or verdict was needed. And significantly, as it traveled, the moment it was announced, it became official in that place. And it's a New Testament word uh, that writers use to convey this same sense, that by speaking it into being, Jesus was heralding in the new kingdom. It was his announcement that caused things to happen. And in the very simplest of terms, this great announcement was what he very clearly gave his followers to continue because he knew that he wasn't going to be around to do the announcing himself. He gave his followers what was known as the Great Commission, the big instruction to announce that the personal and ultimate reign of God at the end of world history has broken into this present world. It unfolds over a few instructions which we're going to look at in a sweeping fashion from Luke and Acts. Firstly, Luke 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them the power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Skipping to verse 6. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Notice he did not just say, just go and tell everyone with words that the kingdom is here. The words of the good news were accompanied by deeds. And then a short time later, according to Luke 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. When you enter the town and are welcomed, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then skipping to verse 17, when they come back, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Uh, again, when this message of good news is announced, the sick are healed and evil is cast out. Again, the great announcement was not just a message of words, but of signs and wonders as well. Luke 24, which is now obviously after the resurrection and just before the ascension, Jesus says, you are my witnesses, so you are witnesses of these things, meaning the, uh, what he's done and what he's taught and how he's risen from the dead. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, power from on high. Skipping now to Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And finally, Acts 2, the famous moment when the Spirit was poured on them. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Tongues that were miraculously the languages of all the Jews gathered in Jerusalem. 3,000 were added to their number that day. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed. 
It's quite simple to be a follower of Jesus. Receive power and herald, announce in word and deed and truth. And power, bring the kingdom wherever you go. This is just how it worked for the apostles in the early church. The news spread. In word and deed, body were healed. bodies were healed, demons were cast out, jail cells, doors were flung open, the poor were looked after, the outcasts were included, and then new churches were formed, and then more people were invited in. More people were healed, more demons fled. The good news was announced to a wider and wider audience in word and in deed. And here we are this morning with the exact same instruction in the exact same interim era of the kingdom of God to be his witnesses in word and deed, in truth and love and power. If you are anything like me at this point, there's only one question circling your mind. And that is, why did they paint the wall behind me black? Why didn't they leave it white? It would have looked a lot better. Not that question. If this is so plainly true, that we live in the exact same era of the early disciples and the early church and all the power and all the stuff that they saw, then why is it not what we see? Why are the signs of the kingdom not, 2,000 years later, what the church is known for? Allow me to humbly hazard a few guesses. My first guess is based on everything I've ever personally witnessed and everything I've learned from people who have witnessed a lot more than me about the way that the Spirit works. When he meets us in power and when signs and wonders occur, is that the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled, predicted, or tamed. And we humans do not like what we cannot control, predict, or tame. We much prefer to legislate, teach, colonize, and spread. We can do that far more effectively using other methods that are far more comfortable to us than asking the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants with signs and wonders. Also, most theologians and anthropologists would agree that the West, in the West, on the whole, we have rejected the supernatural because of, in basic terms, our needs are met. The Enlightenment set us on a path to being able to find our own answers, and post-war GDPs taught us that increasing numbers in society could afford to buy their own contentment. Medical sciences, if that's something we can agree on these days, taught us to set the... Uh, to set limits for what is possible in the human body. In short, it's very, very, very easy for us to keep our eyes fixed on the world around us. The supernatural just never really needs to come into it. Also, we just haven't seen it. A big part of the reason that I think that we don't see more of the miraculous, this essential part of the announcement, is because we haven't seen it. And as anyone who has done any of this stuff will tell you, the more you see it, the more you expect to see it, and the more of it you will see. It's just how it works with faith. In 1904, inspired by the writings of D.L. Moody, a Methodist minister called Joseph Jenkins, in a poor Welsh coastal village, had become increasingly desperate 
by what he perceived as a lack of uh, real genuineness and depth in his spiritual life. One night, he wrestled with God in his study, and he felt what he, in his own words, described as a blue flame coming and surrounding him and filling him with power. By all accounts, from that day forward, his preaching improved, and it was only a couple of weeks later when on a Sunday night he had a knock at his door from a 19-year-old girl called Florrie Evans, who had attended his church uh, her whole life, had never really had much personal interest in anything before, knocked on his door and said, the matter of my soul is almost killing me. I cannot live like this. I saw the world in the sermon tonight, and I am under its feet. Please help me. So he did. He told her to invite Jesus, told her how to invite Jesus into her life, and then to go home, to shut herself in her room, and they're determined to submit herself to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The next week in church, he asked the congregation in the middle of his sermon if anybody could share what Jesus meant to them. And after a long pause, Florrie stood up and simply said, I love Jesus Christ with my whole heart. By all accounts, it was totally silent for quite a while after that of something as her words resonated around the room in ways that people later said they couldn't explain. Then there was this quiet sound of sobbing, first from just one or two, and then more generally as the Holy Spirit fell in power and the depths of God's love filled every person there. That was the start of what became known as the Welsh Revival, by the time it was over, more than 100,000 people had joined the church in Wales. And as significant as that is the impact that was attested to and recorded its impact on Welsh society. Alcoholism, which was a really big problem at the time, cut in half. Rates of serious crime like murder and rape and robbery were cut so much that reportedly magistrates sat idle and loads of policemen lost their jobs choosing instead to form church choirs. My favorite fact about the Welsh Revival is that cursing and profanity diminished so much that work ponies in the mine pits couldn't understand what their bosses were saying to them. And work, uh, all the mine work slowed down significantly because their ponies were confused. It was a movement that spread across the world its impact felt in China, India, Korea, Japan, South Africa, and across Latin America, marked by the news of the kingdom, signs and wonder, healings, and lots of people coming to know Jesus. I can't tell you why it works this way, why sometimes during the interim period in which we live, we see huge periods of power and healing and masses of people coming to see how amazing it is to know Jesus and how much he loves them. And other times, it's a lot harder and drier. It does, if you follow the history of these things, always seem to start with people who earnestly want it. But inside and outside times of revival, anyone who has seen anything in terms of the signs of the kingdom will tell you that these are signs given to the kingdom that have got nothing to do with famous people swinging their jackets. Unfortunately, it's just what seems to happen, I think, when mere mortals 
believe that they are the ones making miracles happen. The deeds of the kingdom, where evil is conquered, where division is no more and bodies are made whole. These were how we were always called to bring the good news. Of this place where we all belong, already here, not yet fully realized. We have no record of the disciples praying for people's healing that were not healed or attempting to cast out demons that remained or praying for things that weren't answered. I'm sure it happened. And we always have to remain kind and gentle enough to allow for the very real reality that it won't always happen when we pray for people today. But let us at least start with the premise that we live in the exact same era as the apostles did in the New Testament, with the same instruction to receive power from on high and to keep making this announcement in word and deed. Because this is good news that the world needs. That he has conquered the chaos. He has defeated evil. He's lord over sickness and division and forgottenness and those who feel left out. That he has beaten even death. It was never supposed to just be words. Uh, We will, as always, invite anyone who would like prayer to come to the front and receive it. But just a quick word about that. We didn't come up with the prayer ministry model, the way that we do it here. It was um, developed by John Wimber in the 70s, church down in Anaheim and you know when I say the model what I mean is the way that we invite people to open themselves and the way that we stand and put a hand on a shoulder the way that the prayer keeps their eyes open the way that we pray quite specific things about the spirit and the way that he moves I mean there are important reasons for the way that we do it what we do but underneath it there are much more fundamental truths firstly it's the belief that the Holy Spirit is always at work to bring the kingdom in personal and loving ways. And obviously, he's omnipresent and we're all filled with him if we're believers, but this is something else. This is the belief that when we gather, when we worship, just as Ben said when we were singing, and when we preach, when we hear these things together, that the Spirit is at work in this room, wherever it happens. And anyone who saw John Wimber do his thing would agree that it was often characterized by a lot of waiting. Wimber apparently spent a lot of time with just silence, no music, so he couldn't have been accused of hyping anything up, just silence, just watching the spirit in the room to see what he was going to do. And he would often pray a prayer in kingdom language. Apparently he'd just fold his arms and just wait. And invariably, a great deal would then happen. I vividly remember a service when I was in my early days back in church where the worship leader did something very similar after the talk. The church that we went to, was the leader of that church was trained by somebody who was trained by Wimber, so it was all kind of, you know, it was all passed on and we kind of, they followed what they'd learned quite closely. But this worship leader stopped playing the guitar, stopped the band, so it was all silent. And we, you know, it was the end of the service. We kind of knew by then, if you'd been coming there for all, you knew this is, this, is where the, this is where the stuff happens. And he stood there and he just, 
he always, he always kind of had half a smile on his face and he's from Birmingham and he just, you know, so everything sounded a little bit more boring than it was anyway because he's from Birmingham. And he goes, um, the Lord is restoring the years that the locusts have eaten, which is, you know, one of the most beautiful, profoundly true kingdom things, isn't it? And we so often need to hear it and be reminded of it, but this is different. I'm not talking about saying good stuff to each other. I'm not talking about proclaiming truth in and of itself. Because just like the account of the Welsh revival that Florrie Evans was, you know, that was in that you know, thing when she said that about loving Jesus with her whole heart, something heavy fell in the room in that moment. I had my eyes closed, but I sensed that people near me started shaking. I felt heat in my own body. I had a real urge to cry and not just weep, like remove pain kind of crying, like sob. And I heard a few other people starting to cry around me. And then it built to like much louder things around the room. And I, I remember this day so specifically because it was to this day still one of the most powerful encounters I've ever had with the Holy Spirit. It was just what we came to expect in church. It's just what happened, maybe not every week, but very, very often. One of Wimber's favorite sayings was, everyone gets to play. And this was part of it. Make no mistake, there were always people sitting there wide-eyed on their seats, wondering what on earth was happening. Because it is just kind of what happens when the presence of God fills our mortal bodies. Our bodies do strange things. Nobody's going to deny that. But then we would hear the stories most weeks of what was happening to people. That we were being witnesses to the good news, the deeds of the kingdom touching people's lives. And that this wasn't just a phenomenon for the specially trained, ordained ones. This is for everyone. Everyone gets to play in this. Everyone can learn to pray for people. Everyone can hear the voice of God. Everyone can be included in healing the sick and casting out demons. It's just how faith works. The more you see, the more you expect to see, and then the more you see. And the ramifications of this are boundless. Because knowing this stuff and believing this stuff and seeing this stuff and expecting to see this stuff it makes us the most optimistic, the most visionary people on earth. It transforms our attitudes to all societal issues. It will make us the most creative, most hopeful people. And we do it with the most grace because we know that everyone's included and there's no bar for entry. I think we will stand now and uh, Ben, do you want to come up?